If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 10 now. We're going to look at the New Testament. Uh, this is where our sermon is going to be based. The series has been called Jesus is Better, and we're looking at 10 ways that Jesus is better than everything else from the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. Uh, this morning, we're going to see how Jesus renews our relationship with God. Jesus renews and refreshes our relationship with God. So let's look at that. Uh, here in chapter 10, I'm going to read to you the first 18 verses. If you don't have your Bible, you can find it printed in your bulletin. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. For he said, first he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, there ha where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Jesus renews our relationship with God. And he does it, according to this passage, by bringing the reality that the Old Testament law could only shadow. All right? He contrasts shadow and reality. It's a little bit like uh, the difference between a blueprint and the actual building or the house that is made in accordance with the blueprint. Now, how important are blueprints? I'd say very, very important, right? Uh, you can't hardly build anything of any kind of size or you know, uh, detail without having some kind of blueprinted plan beforehand. Very important. But if you think about that question a little harder, I think you'll have to say, they're very important, but it varies how important they are depending on the circumstance. For example, while you're building a house, how important is the blueprint? 
I mean, as important as it will ever get, right? That, that blueprint has never been more important than when you're actually building the thing. In fact, if you lost the blueprint while you were building it and you didn't have a copy, it would be a crisis. It'd be a big problem. Somebody would be in trouble. But think about this. After the house is built and you've already moved in, you're sitting in the living room watching TV. How important is that blueprint? Not as, right? I wouldn't say it's unimportant. I mean, you know, most people have, you know, if you, have, if you own a house, you have a copy, at least a survey, maybe a blueprint of your house when it was originally built. And if you're going to do some big work to it, you've got to pull that thing back out. Uh, sometimes people like to frame them, and it's beautiful, and it reminds you of when you built the house. But it varies, doesn't it? It's not nearly as important, or at least not as important in the same way, after it's built as it was before. That's exactly what the writer here in chapter 10 is saying. The Old Testament regulations about life and worship before Jesus came were God's blueprint of what Jesus would do. For the people who lived prior to Jesus, it was like they couldn't let it out of their sight. They had to memorize it. They had to know it so cold because that was the only way they had to get in touch with God and to come into his presence. But after Jesus came and actually built the house that the blueprint was, you know, was showing them, you don't need it in the same way. You pull it out. Yes, you study it because it shows you a beautiful outline of Jesus Christ. But you don't have to actually do the sacrifices and all those other things that you once had to do before Jesus came and did his sacrifice. Now, why is the writer saying this? Because these early Christians were tempted once they had moved into the house of Jesus to go backwards out of the house and start looking at the blueprint again. Think about how crazy that would be to move out of your house and only just stare at the blueprint all day. That'd be weird, wouldn't it? And that was the thing that these early followers of Jesus were tempted to do, probably because it was more familiar to them. They were Jews by nature, and so this is what they grew up with. It was comfortable, it was familiar, and they wanted to go back to it. The writer says, you can't. You can't, because you're living in the house. Jesus has renewed the relationship that people can have with God forever. Forever and ever. And so if you'll look today at your bulletin at the back of the bulletin, there's an outline for the sermon. And I want to talk you through three steps from this passage to help you see this. First of all, we're going to see how it was. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 10. Uh, what a relationship with God was like before Jesus came. Secondly, we're going to see what he did when he came. We're going to see that in verses 5 uh, through 14. And then lastly, we're going to see how it is now uh, in verses 15 to 18. How it was, what he did, and how it is, all right? First of all, how it was. Uh, the writer there in, in chapter 10, verse 1, contrasts shadow with reality. The same thing as saying blueprint versus the actual house. And what made the two different is very clear, right? It says the law was only the shadow of things that are coming, not the reality. And for this reason, verse 1, it can never by the same sacrifices make perfect those who draw near to worship. See, the thing that about the, the blueprint, about the Old Testament regulations, as good as they were for people, they did not actually deliver the thing that was being promised. They only showed that it would one day be delivered so people could have faith. Now, they, they did have a relationship with God, and they had it in many ways just like we do. They knew the forgiveness of their sins. They knew all these things. But they did not know them through the blood of the goats, the blood of the goats was only like a, the Bible calls it a tutor. 
It, it was a, an object lesson that the people got to live out day by day, year after year, to remind them that, hey, I'm a sinner, and God is going to have to provide a remedy. And I know the remedy can't be this goat. This goat is only like a stand-in in the meantime before the real remedy that God is going to send into the world comes. And the reason they knew that is because after they offered the goat one year, they had to offer it the next year and the next year and the next year and the next day and the next day after that. It never stopped, it says. The priests never sat down. And, you know, if, you, if you study the, uh, the temple and the tabernacle, there wasn't a single seat in the place. There wasn't. And the reason for that is no worshiper could sit down because the work hadn't been finished. The work was constantly to be done. And so it couldn't perfect, it couldn't make holy, it couldn't actually take away sins. What did it do? Verse 3, it was a reminder of their sins. It did a good job of reminding, but it did not do a good job of perfecting. You get that? The people had a real relationship with God, but it was a relationship with God that was drawn, as one great theologian said, in rude and imperfect lines. It was drawn in sketch form, like a blueprint, like a shadow. A reminder every day, I am a sinner. I cannot come into the presence of a holy God without a remedy that he provides. Here is a goat to stand in the place of what one day he will provide for the sins of the world when he sends his great sacrifice, his Messiah, his servant, into the world to do his will. That was a reminder. Now, reminders are very, very important. In fact, the word there for reminder in Greek is where we get our word for mnemonic device from. You know what a mnemonic device is? A mnemonic device is a, a way that you come up with to remember something that's hard to remember. Uh, maybe you remember from school and, and kids that are in here, you might know Roy G. Biv. Y'all remember Roy G. Biv? Uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. If you remember Roy G. Biv, which is easy to remember, you can remember something hard to remember, which is the colors of the spectrum, right? The, the, the rainbow. Same thing with my very intelligent mother just served us nachos. <laughs> remember that one? That, that, that gives you Mercury and Venus and Earth and Mars and so on. <laughs> my very intelligent mother just served us nachos. Now, when I was in school, it used to be my very intelligent mother just served us nine pizzas. Uh -huh. But Pluto got booted out recently, so it's just nachos now. But that's a mnemonic device. Mnemonic devices work very simply. They, they give you something easy to remember to help you remember something that's not easy to remember. And don't you know, it, it shouldn't be this hard, but it's really hard for us to remember, A, that we are sinners, and B, that God has to provide the remedy. It's extraordinarily hard for us to remember that. You say, well, no, I feel guilty all the time. That's different. It's not, it's not hard for human beings to feel just simply guilty. It's not hard for us to feel shame or ashamed. It's not hard for us to feel you know, low self-esteem or anything like that. What is hard is for us to recognize we are sinners in the sight of a holy God into whose presence we could never come unless he provided something to make a way for us. And that was the very thing that the Old Testament regulations etched onto their conscience, etched onto their minds every single time they even thought about going to worship. That was really, really important. But I think you'll admit with me, while they lived under those regulations, it must have been just constantly a longing for more. Isn't that right? 
I mean, if all we came to church for is just simply to be reminded of our sin and then reminded that God is going to one day provide a perfect sacrifice, we would always be thinking, man, is that it? Things have changed now, haven't they? Because now when we come to church, we're reminded not only that we're sinners and God was one day going to provide a sacrifice, but he has already provided it. And this room is full of seats. (laughs) Because we get to sit down and rest and bask in the glory of a work that's finished. More on that in a moment. And so think about it. If it was treacherous for these early Christians to turn away from Jesus back to something that God had provided to remind them of Jesus yet to come, how much more treacherous is it for us to turn away from Jesus to things that God didn't even approve of or give to us? I know none of us probably have been tempted strongly to go back to sacrificing animals. <laughs> probably never in our lives have we thought, man, I really just want to go do Leviticus. I want to go get in there and do that stuff. We never thought about that. But every day, isn't it right? Our hearts are being drawn away from Jesus to things that are so much less than Jesus. Instead of him being our Lord and Savior, a stupid bank account becomes our Lord and Savior. A job praise from somebody else, a romance, our children, even good things, can become a fake Lord and Savior replacing Jesus in our hearts. If they were wrong to go back to something that God had actually given them, how wrong are we when we go to stuff that God hasn't even given for us to follow and put our trust in, right? It's not that those things are bad that we turn to. Those things are all good. They're blessings from God. But as one great writer says, they're just signposts pointing us to something greater. Every blessing in life is just a big old sign to say, God this way. (laughs) When you eat a good meal, when you have a full bank account, it's just a sign pointing God this way. There's a greater treasure that this treasure is just a tiny little hors d'oeuvre for. And yet we stop at the hors d'oeuvre. We stop at the sign and we start having a picnic rather than following the sign to where it's supposed to point. And so the writer says, look, don't go back to shadows. To us this morning, don't go back to shadows. Don't go to things that can never satisfy. They can never renew your relationship with God. Those things can only remind you of what hasn't been done. They cannot give you an assurance of what has already been accomplished. Did you know that when you turn to serve other lords and saviors, you're actually living like Jesus never came? That's what we're doing. That's what they were doing. They were star- At least they were tempted to do that. And that's what we do. Every time we worship, serve, or trust completely in something that's not named Jesus. That's the first thing, how it was. Secondly, I want you to see what he did. We've already uh, alluded to it, but there in verse 5 through 14, he tells us in a very detailed way, Jesus came and finished the work that had been blueprinted ahead of time. Now, we said in in this room and in most churches, there are seats for the pastor and the people. There are seats because all of us get to sit down and rest in a work that's already finished. Uh, Don't you know at work, uh, what's it like at work when you're in the middle of a project that's not yet done? Uh, You haven't met your quota yet. Um, you, You still have a patient or patients on the floor. You still have students in the classroom ready to... You're getting ready to take a test. What's that like versus after the project has been submitted, the quota has been met, 
right? There's a different atmosphere, isn't there, in, in all the workplace. Uh, there's tension on the one hand. Sometimes people even get short with each other. Uh, we get frustrated uh, because we're stressed to the max because the work is not done and everybody knows it. Uh, especially early on when the work's not even close to being done, it can feel like an impossible mountain to climb. But once you've finished that job, whatever it is, and you're just sitting down to finish up some paperwork, that feeling, isn't that a good feeling? And everybody's kind of celebrating and kind of landing the plane for the day or for the week or whatever it is. Church ought to be more like the latter than the former. The Christian life ought to be more like the latter than the former. Because the most important work. Now don't get me wrong. There's work for us to do as Christians. There's a lot of it. God tells you to do a lot of things. And every one of those things is good. But the most important, the life-saving, soul-saving work that needed to be done had already been done completely in full. Look at what it says there in verse 5. When Jesus came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In other words, I know, Jesus is saying, I know the sacrifices you gave, Father, were only given to be a blueprint. They weren't the real thing. They were just a blueprint. It wasn't those things that you actually desired. Listen, God does not eat goats or bulls that we need to offer him food. That's not the way it works. Even the Old Testament said this much. These th in fact, this is quoting from the Old Testament right there. That's quoting from Psalm 40. Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you gave me, Jesus says. I've come to give you what you really were looking for, which was a perfect human being to offer himself completely in life and in death on behalf of your people. The real sacrifice that can take a sinner like me and a, and a sinner like you out of a state of hell and bring us into a state of heaven and grace and life with God. When Jesus died on the cross, remember those famous words, just three simple words. Actually, it's only one word in the original language. It is finished. Isn't that good? Here's the body you gave me, Father. I'm offering it to you. And once I offer it, it is finished. It said there in uh, verse 10, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at the word. Once for all time. Once for all. Isn't that amazing? Uh, then again in verse 14, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You notice how he's emphasizing the reality that Jesus came to bring is a finished thing versus the blueprint, which by definition, a blueprint is, represents an unfinished thing. And so he's, he's once again saying, because of what Jesus did, you shouldn't turn away from that. You shouldn't try to put your ultimate trust in any other thing less than Jesus because Jesus has brought it to perfect completion. The work has been done. We can learn how to rest ourselves, to lean the whole weight of our lives onto something we never did, something we never could do because God sent his son into the world to do it. In fact, the, you know, this, this passage says as much. Did you notice in verse 5 it says, When Christ came into the world, I love that phrase about Jesus. Now, you know, I can say that. I could say that about me, but it would only be a manner of speaking. I could say, I came into the world on May 6th, 1984, in Bartow, Florida. And that would be a true statement. I came into the world. But I would only really be saying I was born. 
When the Bible says Jesus came into the world, it literally means he was somewhere else eternally. He already had existed. He was in glory. He's God the Son. And he, and he left that status to come and assume another status in another place in this world that he made. The Son of God became a person. And that's why he, was, he, he says, you've given me a body in order to perform your will fully. You've given me a body. The Son of God took a human body like ours so that he could offer that body the way we were supposed to offer our bodies, both in life and in death, so that you and I could be counted as righteous, as Christ is righteous in the eyes of God. Isn't that good news? I don't know about you, but I look around the world, and I look in my life, and the people that I know and the people I don't know, how, isn't it, isn't it right that people can be very disappointing? Let's just be honest. We can, I can be disappointing. I'm sure I've disappointed you before. Uh, I, I, we're all disappointing people. The people we adore that are celebrities or leaders or whatever it is that we, we look up to, how often lately have we seen them in scandal and doing disappointing things that have let us down, right? Don't we need somebody who comes into this world in a literal sense? Not just somebody who was born like we all are and just one disappointment after the other throughout our whole lives. Don't we need somebody to come from the outside with a strength and a power greater than ours, a perfection more pure than ours, to be able to do what we could never do for ourselves? And that's what this passage is saying Jesus did. He lived his life in perfect obedience. Perfect obedience to God. So that God could actually say to Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He's never been able to say that about me in and of myself. But he said it about Jesus. When Jesus died, he was, it was such a perfect offering of himself in the place of sinners that God received that as a sacrifice which would wash the sins of all of his people all around the world away forever. That's how amazing the work of Jesus is. It says he fully sanctifies us or makes us holy, and he fully, even it says, perfects us through that sacrifice. So much so, look at what it says in, in verse 12. After he did it, he sat down. Y'all, there's not just a seat in this house. There's a seat in the altar above today. There's a seat in heaven. There wasn't a seat on the temple on earth because you couldn't sit down. It wasn't done yet. There is a seat in heaven today, and I want you to know it's occupied. And it's occupied because Jesus, like a workman after a long week of work, has finally been able to sit down and take his rest as he rules over the world and works out what he did on the cross into hearts of people like you and me. That's what he's doing right now. Sitting, working his work out, waiting for the day when his work will be finally realized in the world, when all things will be made new. What an amazing thing. That's, that's what Jesus came into the world to do, to, to redeem us and to renew our relationship with God. That means if you are more stressed than rested when it comes to your relationship with God, if you're more saddled with guilt than you are with enjoying the favor that you've been given through Jesus Christ, you need to come back to the finished work and remind yourself of it. You need to do that. I need to do that. I find that i got to do it within the course of a day multiple times. 
because that's how quickly my heart goes from it is finished to it's not done yet. I got to do something. I got to find out somehow to get right. You know, I got to find out somehow to be good enough. Right? It's the, it's the human's natural language, the language of what, the, what Scripture calls works righteousness. Uh, trying to be righteous by what I do or who I am. We got to turn from that by remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Again, that doesn't mean there's nothing for us to do. God gives us much to do. But we have to do on the basis of done. Right? Do on the basis of done, which is extraordinarily different than doing on the basis of undone. It's just a total different way of living between those two things. Total different. In fact, the person that does on the basis of undone will never actually do truly from the heart for the Lord. Won't ever really truly love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because it will always be partly, I'm doing this just to save my own skin. Not, I'm doing this because, man, how I love the Lord. Man, how good he's been to me. Wow, what an amazing grace he's shown me through his son. To do on the basis of done is to really do. Like you've never done before. That's the second thing. Lastly today, how it is. And you say, well, you've already been talking about how it is. Let me talk some more about it. <laughs> Because it's really, really good. And, and in verses 15 through 18, that's what he does. The writer here, he says, the Holy Spirit also testifies about this. So if you've noticed in the sermon today, we've had what the Father did, what the Son did, and now what the Holy Spirit did. Right? We've seen all three. The Father gave a blueprint. The Son came and built the house. And now the Holy Spirit testifies to what Jesus has given us. That's a beautiful thing. We're covered by the Trinity. We're surrounded by God. Uh, filled by God in every way. Now, what does the Spirit testify to? It says, first of all, this is the covenant. So he testifies to the covenant that God makes with us, which is to put my law in their hearts and to write it on their minds. That's the first thing. The second thing he testifies to, verse 17, is that their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. That's two things that the Spirit testifies to about you if your faith is in Christ. First of all, God has written and is writing his law in your heart and on your mind. It's interesting that he starts with that one, isn't it? A lot of times I think of it should be flipped. Start with forgiveness, then talk about how he you know, writes his word in the heart. Because it seems like that's the order it should go in. But he says the, that other one first and forgiveness second. And I think, I don't know exactly why he does, I mean, I don't know, other than the fact that maybe that's the one that we need to hear first. You know? I think there's a special kind of hope that comes into our life to know not only have my sins been forgiven, but God is actually changing my heart. Right? There's a special hope that comes from that. If I only thought that God came to forgive me my sins but not to change my heart, that would just mean my whole life is going to be just this cycle endlessly repeated of me doing the same things wrong, having to come to God to ask for forgiveness and doing it again and again and again, never making any progress. And it says the exact opposite right there. That the Lord, and this is not a work of a night or of a day, this is a work of a lifetime, but the Lord promises to put his laws on our hearts so that if you're a Christian, what that means is you have been given new desires by God. 
You've been, you've been given a whole new way to think, a whole new way to feel. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. It gets worked out over time. It gets worked out mainly through the Bible, through reading it and, and praying over it and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you through his word. But he's writing it not just so that you memorize it, but he's writing it at the core of who you are, which is what heart means. At the core of who you are. So that now you're not the same person that you used to be. And tomorrow, by God's grace, you won't be the same person you are today. You might not see the progress because it's, it honestly is a lot of times painfully slow. At least it is for me. But nevertheless, when you look back over years, don't you see it? I don't love the things I used to love. Praise God. I don't, right? And I love some things today that I didn't love years ago. Praise the Lord. And the Spirit testifies to this in my heart. If the Spirit didn't testify to this, I probably wouldn't believe it because it's a little too good to be true. That God would actually write in our hearts. That's a little too good to be true. But isn't it right that when something is too good to be true and a stranger tells it to you, you ain't going to believe it? Like, you know, your extended car warranty is going to be extended for free or, or, you know, you just won the jackpot. Just send me your bank information and I'll. You don't believe that when it's a stranger. But if it's someone you already know, love and trust. You're at least going to consider it. Right. I mean, if the if the top eight out of 10 people that, you know, love and trust the most came to you and said the most outlandish thing, if they said, look, last night. An alien came to my house, abducted me, took me to his spaceship, and served me pizza. You would probably, I mean, if eight of the ten most trusted people in your life came to you independently and gave that same story, you'd be like, well, man, maybe there really are UFOs. Maybe these pictures that the Navy or whoever has given out, maybe these things are real. Because you know and trust them. Even the craziest things, you're going you're gonna to begin to... Think about them and consider them. Well, if the Holy Spirit of God, who is given to you as a constant companion and friend, comes to testify, to swear to the fact, yes, I am in you writing my law on your heart, even though that sounds kind of crazy, you're going to be like, wow, maybe he is. Maybe there is hope for me. Maybe somebody like me actually can change over time. Maybe one day, like God promises, I actually will be like Jesus when I get to heaven. I mean, that sounds just as crazy as aliens getting me and serving me pizza (laughs) at the moment. But yet the Holy Spirit testifies, it will happen. I will do it. That's that's awesome, isn't it? The second thing he testifies to is is, is just as awesome. Their sins and lawless deeds or lawless acts I will remember no more. Now, it's a play on words because that same word, mnemonic, shows up there too. So in the Old Testament, God gave a mnemonic device to remind people of sin. And here it says that because of the work of Jesus, God himself doesn't even have a mnemonic for our sins. (laughs) You know, if you can speak of God forgetting something, which is kind of impossible for him to do in a literal sense, yet he chooses to forget. To not call back into memory, to not bring against us our sins anymore. And when it says sins and lawless acts, it it actually just says all of them, right? It doesn't say 
some of their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. Or the, one, the sins and lawless acts that are less offensive to me I'll remember no more. Or the sins and lawless acts that you can bring yourself to forgive yourself for I will remember no more. But just their sins and lawless acts. When Jesus died on the cross, he won forgiveness for past, present, and future sins for all of his people. Past, present, future. He won forgiveness for big sins and small sins. For respectable sins that people might compliment you for. And for the sins that people, if they knew, wouldn't want to be your friend. God remembers them no more. Because of his son, Jesus Christ. Just like Martin Luther said at the beginning of the service, we read it. When I look at myself, I find so much unholiness to shock me. But when I look at Christ in me, I see that I'm altogether holy. Because my sins and lawless deeds have been forgiven. And because a newness of life has been given. And the Spirit testifies to both things if I'm willing to listen. You've got to listen to the Holy Spirit, though. If you're not listening to the Holy Spirit, you won't get the testimony. But if you come to Scripture and say, Speak, Holy Spirit. Testify in my heart again today. Again today. Of what Christ has done and delivered to me. It's very similar to that great story that Jesus, uh, in the life of Jesus, where he meets the woman caught in adultery. And remember, he says to her two things. Do you remember that? He says, I do not condemn you, your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing. And then the second thing he says, Go and sin no more. He says both things. Now, what, I mean, just imagine for a moment if Christ had only said the first one and not the second one. How would the woman walk away? Maybe, okay, you know, he let me off this time, but I know, I know myself. I've tried to get out of this lifestyle for years. I haven't been able to. I'm stuck. This is who I am. I can't change it. Nobody can change it. And she would go back with the same kind of hopelessness. On the other side, if Jesus had only said to the woman, stop sinning, and not, I don't condemn you, your sins are forgiven, how would she walk away? Anxious, the project's still going, I've got to somehow fix myself. This guy let me off the hook, and he's telling me not to sin anymore. I've got to, I've got to do something to earn it. Isn't it a blessing that both Jesus and the Holy Spirit testify to sinners like her and like you and me? Your sins are forgiven, and by my grace, go and sin no more. I'll, I'll write it on your heart. I'll be with you every step of the way. I'll make you new. You can have both joy and hope in a relationship with God different than you could have ever had or you can ever have apart from Jesus. Isn't that amazing? 